Thank you for listening to The Matrix is Real. Uh, my name is Neo. Today I wanted to talk to you a little bit about my journey to this exact moment of, I, I want to say time, but time isn't real. This exact moment in, in, in existence, I'll, I'll say. Um, I have a very deep and uh, unresolving admiration for Jesus but also an unyielding amount of dedication and and faith for uh, God. And and to me, Jesus and God are not one and the same. Jesus is not, in my view, the literal Son of God, and Jesus was no more God than you or I, as we are all sons and daughters of God. But this faith that I have now has not always been the case. There was a time, actually, that I cursed God's name, Um, There was a time that I actually pretended that God did not exist and that God was simply a a fairy tale that was created um, by people of the past. But even in, I can speak honestly, even during those times, uh, deep down I knew that I was just fooling myself. I was just very angry. Um, Both my parents uh, separated when I was three. Um, They were also both uh, alcoholics and, and are now recovering alcoholics. Um, I first learned about God from going to church with my mom. I was raised as a Catholic, not not like you know most people when they when they say that I was I didn't go to Catholic school. Um, I you know I, I I didn't actually like go through the actual um, brainwashing, so to speak, of the of, of uh, Catholicism, um, but. That changed a little bit because uh, at one point, uh, if I remember correctly, my mom was uh, politely asked if um, me and her would not continue attending that church anymore, um, which I thought was pretty unfair and I I didn't understand why, but we later went into a different church, a Christian church, which um, highly conservative. Um, I was living in, you know, California, Southern California at the time. And this was in the, uh, the the 90s. I remember in the 90s, you know, the people, the women in the church were wearing, you know, those old-fashioned, like, long floral dresses that went all the way, you know, to their ankles, and you know, have a little, uh, a little lacy, like, white lace around the around their neck and stuff like that. Like, that's that's literally, you know, it was almost like a cult, like an Amish cult. Like, that's how conservative it was. Um, but my faith was again tested there. Uh, I was, I was actually baptized, um, with that church. Um, and my mom and I were at the time on the path toward becoming members. And all that changed when my mom met a a man, uh, in the congregation. And after, you know, spending time with him and stuff, he was, he was, uh, divorced as, you know, she she, um, was no longer with my father. And after they had, you know, built a friendship and stuff like that, it came a point where, you know, they were exploring, um, you know, possibly getting together and, and, and maybe getting married. Um, apparently they approached um, the pastor at the church and, you know, said, would, would, will you marry us if we decide this? And he said, no. He said, um, you're, you know, one of you is divorced and the other one of you is, you know, has a child and another with another man. And, uh, I can't, I can't marry you guys. It would be a sin. And that, that act in itself really just, you know, turned me away. Um, 
I know now that says, you know, any, any man that divorces his wife is, is guilty of adultery. And, and any man that you know, remarries a, a divorced woman is also guilty of adultery. So I, I, get, I guess I technically get that, adherent, that strict adherence to it. But I was just turned off because, in my view, my mom at the time, you know, she was a good person. Uh, maybe not perfect, but a good person and deserved happiness. And uh, the, the man that she was interested in also seemed, by all accounts, like a good, decent guy, you know. And I just wanted my mom to be happy. Um, it was after that that I just became really angry. Um, uh, if I remember correctly, we were actually also asked to leave that church, uh, partly again, because my mom was trying to marry or was interested in marrying, um, somebody else at the church that was divorced. But also, um, I had started to ask a lot of questions myself in the Sunday school and, you know, with the little kids that, um, the, um, you know, the members of the church and the pastor didn't really like. So that turned me off from God for a while. Um, during that time, uh, my mom had primary custody of me and I, I lived with both parents, you know, pretty much 50-50. But uh, during that time, I a lot of conflict started happening as I was reaching in my, my adolescence. And eventually I, um, I moved out of my mother's house when I was about 13 years old and moved in with my, my dad full time. Um, I became very, very um, lonely and depressed. Um, I was... My dad lived about 45 minutes away from the school I was attending. And so that decision that I made caused me to have to, you know, distance myself further from people that I went to school with. Um, on the weekends, it was, you know, very difficult for me to go and, and, and hang out with my friends and play with them and to go do stuff. So I, I became very isolated and I, I literally kind of lived in my room um, reading and watching movies and stuff like that. Um, and I, I just remember I... I, I probably because I was feeling so depressed that at that point I just completely kind of gave up on God and, and I um, I started gravitating more toward um, politics and um, I've always been the type that I want to change the world and make it a better place so I, I felt like I started focusing more on, on the politics of, of men and, and people and um, as I became you know an older teen and, and a young adult um, I voted for the first time, and I, I voted for uh, uh, Barack Obama for his first term. Um, and I just I started to get very, very involved with the political process. But um, it was when the um, the Great Recession happened of uh, 2007, 2008. Uh, that's when I really, really kind of I think started heading down more toward this path that I'm on now. Um, I was working for Nordstrom at the time. And they had just started up a flagship uh, store in uh, near LA, and it was supposed to be, you know, the most modern, nicest store that Southern California was going to have. And they opened it literally right as the economy was falling apart. So I remember standing um, on the sales floor in the shoe department, and we'd have like an army of like thirty to forty salespeople, and literally have like zero to one customers in the entire store. I'm not even talking about the sales floor. In the store, there was like one customer. So that was a really, really trying time, and uh, I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I, um, I ended up, I ended up losing my job not because I was laid off due to the economy. I was fired. I was straight up fired um, for stealing. Um, I was, you know, we were struggling, um, you know, trying to make ends meet, and and um, I, I stole something stupid. I stole some freaking makeup for my my wife. Um, and, uh, you know, I got caught and, and they, they, 
loss prevention, the security, you know, called me in and, and talked to me about it. And then at the end, they, they fired me. So that started, a, you know, a, I guess a, a process of, of reflection. Um, I ended up um, getting a, a job uh, doing accounting and, and processing taxes. And it was during that time that I started to get more involved, not in politics, but uh, into the stock market. And I was investing in the stock market, day trading. And very quickly, I started to see that there's two worlds that exist in, in, in for, the, for, the, for the masses um, in terms of how we're governed. The first world is the one that you think that you have control over, and that's the political process of voting. You know, this year it's going to be Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Uh, four years ago it was Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, and so on and so forth. And... I, I realized very early on that um, there's obviously something broken about the system as it, as it operates currently. We keep voting for people with the same complaints and being given the same promises only to have these same people completely break them. And it's almost like they're all kind of kind of following the same script. You know, they tell us one thing while they're secretly doing the exact opposite. So more and more, I started saying that money and um, other forms of, of influence and power were really the ones responsible for much of what's going on in the world, especially the, the big, big events that you're not seeing on TV in the news. So, more and more, I started getting exposed to um, other ideas about, um, about God and um, I, I started an Instagram account bearing the same name called The Matrix is Real. At one point, I had almost 300,000 followers. And it was while having that account, I came into contact with a young lady who uh, was, interestingly enough, from the, um, the EDM rave scene. And uh, she introduced me to this idea that, uh, you know, uh, the law of attraction how I viewed the world in a very cynical way at the time in a very fearful negative world was creating and perpetuating my own experience of this negativity and, and an example of that was my lack of faith and my hatred of God or my my refusal to acknowledge the existence of God so it was after talking to her that my life really started to change just because somebody that I never expected to you know really get have anything in common with or learn anything from kind of completely spun my head and, and, and set me on a kind of a, a different path. Um, but it was during that time that I started, um, I started learning more just about, uh, meditation and practicing it more and, um, you know, just really approaching a lot of these concepts and ideas that I always had about just life in general differently. Um, the easiest one is, is time. Um, time as we are taught is linear, goes, you know, from point A to point B, beginning to end, and, uh, you know, there's a past, future, and present. There's three, you know, states of time. Now, the biggest thing that helped alleviate my day-to-day and moment-to-moment anxieties is this understanding. Time is not real, and I can prove it to you right now. Imagine you're floating in outer space, and everything that exists, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, you know, constellations, all that, you can see all of it. Little by little, one by one, start removing things. 
remove sources of light. So first remove stars, remove planets, remove you know everything else. Once you remove all those light sources and all those objects, well, I'm not making it. I'm just going to step back. Just remove the light sources, remove the stars and the suns. You know the same thing. Remove all the stars. Instantly, your ability to perceive time, distance, and space entirely disappears. You're floating in an endless black nothingness void that, interestingly enough, contains everything, everything that exists. And that, that is literally um, the reality with which we live. The only reason we have any concept of time is because we have reference points. Our entire basis of time on this planet Earth is limited to the planet's revolution on its axis, so us spinning like a top, and also our movement on the planet around the sun for the seasons. So without those two, our reference for time just disappears. And time, I like to think of time as like a ruler. Um, you can use it to make measurements, but if you, if you live by the ruler, you lose the whole point. And here's another way that I can kind of bend your mind a little bit further. When has it not been now? When has it not been the present? And, and just think of it this way. 10 years ago, think of where you were approximately 10 years ago in your life. Try to remember a specific moment that you can consciously remember being in. You can remember looking at something, hearing something, smelling something, having a conversation, being somewhere, taking a photo, anything. Anything that you remember being at. That moment is the same as the one that, that you're in right now listening to me talk. It's just, it was, it was a, it's a, a more distant uh, point of now. It was, a, it was a past now, but it was still, it was still now. It just, it, 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 it's not, you understand what I mean? It's almost like um, all time exists on like a piece of paper. And you can fold that paper, you know, in any way you want. And you can get different reference points of the same point in time, but it's still the same point in time. So, where I am now, I, I'm now learning meditation and I'm learning all these things. I'm get, gaining followers. And during that time, um, the book that really changed it for me was a gift actually given to me by, um, by my wife. And um, it was called Zealot. It was called Zealot. It was a book by Riza Aslan um, about the um, basically the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, in the book, Mr. Aslan um, looks into the non um, the non Christian pieces of history that that describe Jesus and kind of compares and contrasts the differences and. and um, that was just a really eye-opening experience and book for me. Uh, it gave me a completely different take on Jesus and presented him in a much more uh, human and uh, accessible form. Uh, Jesus commanded us to, to live in his image and walk in his footsteps. And I always learned that to be kind of like a, you know, a metaphor, a metaphorical saying. But when you look at the facts... And you look at the possibility that Jesus was a regular man or woman, you know, a regular person just like me and you. Um, it makes his teachings that much more powerful in my view. So that's just a little bit of the backstory of, of where I'm coming from. 
But now I'm going to get you into what I want to talk about, which is the, the history of what I have learned. So to sum it up, the, the Gospels say that Jesus was basically born, and the second he was born, he was known to be special, and that um, he basically was a savant for no apparent reason in a time when 99.9% you know, of the population couldn't read or write their own name. Um, this this little kid could recite, you know, the the, the, the holy books and he, he understood the philosophy involved and he could literally teach the teachers. That's how gifted he was. Um, and then when he's a young boy, you know, he kind of just disappears from, from the stories only to reappear as a fully grown, you know, I'm not going to say middle-aged man, but, you know, man in his 30s, you know, just comes back and disappears out of nowhere. And um, ends up, you know, doing the, the, the story we all know, standing up to the Romans and to the, the, the Pharisees and uh, is crucified and, and buried and, you know, like zombie Jesus just just rises from the dead and, and, and floats into heaven with it, with God um, to, you know, assume his, his, uh, his right hand on the throne. Aside from, you know, just sounding like pure fantasy, um, this, this story is just full with logical inconsistencies. Again, where did Jesus go? There was about 17 years that he's just, his life just kind of just falls off the face of the earth. And, um, no one in the West, no mainstream Christian theologians really can explain that too, too much. You know, they, they can't really explain why that is. Well, let me, let me, let me try to explain and you tell me if, uh, if, if this makes sense to you. A man by the name of Nicholas Notovich, who was a Russian uh, writer and author, um, discovered a long lost document in 1887 at the Himis Monastery in Ladakh. Um, this document was read to him from, uh, allegedly by the chief lama at the monastery and translated by uh, Notovich's translator. Um, at the time, this wasn't something that was just kind of done, you know, on the, on the, on the lowdown or low key. This, this, he published this um, and it sent shockwaves through the developed world. Um, every, you know, mainstream Christian the, uh, theologian took their aim at, at Notovich to completely, you know, tear him down and apart. And um, one of the most expect, respected ones by the name of Max Muller, uh, I believe he worked at Oxford University, um, he kind of made it a, person, a personal vendetta to, to refute um, refute him and, and, and Mr. Notovich in every single way. Um, he partly did this in, I, I want to say collaboration, but there was a man by the name of J. Archibald Douglas who supposedly also traveled to the Hemi's Monastery and also interviewed the chief lama where he took a deposition that the, the lama basically refuted everything that Notovich said and said it was all completely false and all made up. Um, but this... This uh, didn't hold very long... Um, Notovich offered his own his own explanations for why the Lama didn't um, didn't just you know confirm everything. Um, monks and, and people you know lamas that, that work in monasteries in the East 
very guarded of, of their knowledge. Um, very, very uh, skeptical of um, people from the West, Europeans. So, um, Notovich explained why he was told the truth and why Douglas was not was something that he called Eastern diplomacy. Um, the culture, uh, uh, many cultures in Asia are not very direct or blunt. Uh, for example, it's very, you know, in parts of Asia, it's very rude and offensive if you look someone directly in the eye when you first meet them because you don't know them. Um, making eye contact is something that's very, very, very uh, special and is usually reserved for, you know, people that, that truly, truly know each other um, or have some sort of uh, cultural commonality. Um, so, Notovich was aware of this, and when he went into um, into the monastery, which was uh, actually by chance, he, he supposedly broke his leg and was taken in there to um, you know to, to be nursed back to health. It was while he was there that he first heard one of the lamas mention something about uh, a man by the name of Saint Isa, who sounded very similar to Jesus. Um, Isa is something Jesus was actually also called in um, the Quran, so in in uh, the Islamic faith and Muslims. Um, and upon hearing this, he, he pressed and he said, you know, who's this Isa you're talking about? And it was then that he realized that Isa was basically Jesus. And the, the chief Lama, um, only told him this information because he, uh, Eastern diplomacy is he, he hid the true intents of his dialogue with him. If he had bluntly said, look, I want to know all about this, this manuscript that you have talking about Jesus, he would have shut down and not told him a thing because it would have been very apparent that he wanted this, he valued this information and it was important to him. Um, a lot of the monasteries in Asia were um, looted and burglarized by, um, by uh, Europeans uh, to steal artifacts and uh, um, you know, other things of that nature. And, and you know, this is just obvious. If you go to any, any uh, European um, uh, museum, you see stolen artifacts from everywhere, from Africa, from India, from Asia, from, you know, everywhere, but South, South America, Mexico, all these places. So it's not surprising that these monks were very, very guarded with their, with their secrets. So that was Notovich's explanation for why, uh, why he was, he was, was not given the same information, but there was a lot more that he gave. And it's so much that even the New York times said that while, um, while uh, while much of, of, of Notovich's findings were, quote, like settled among the mainstream, um, he was in no way silenced or refuted by his detractors. This is a pretty loose quote from the New York Times. So in other words, the New York Times itself was saying, look, we might have pushed this guy aside, but no one really offered any sort of damning evidence this this guy made it up i mean he he explains himself pretty well and he has a lot of evidence to support to support what he's claiming um this was this story was further made more confusing um when in 1929 a close friend of max muller uh, by the name of swami it's a long name i'm gonna sound it out a little bit abhed and abhed on adanda we know abhed on anda I don't know. A-B-E-H-E-D-A-N-A-N-D-A. Abhenandanda. Yeah, that sounds terrible. He published a Bengali translation of the same Hemi's manuscript in 1929. So he went, after reading uh, the 
the statements from uh, J. Archibald Douglas, as well as Max Muller, his friend, he went to Asia to verify these same things for himself. And lo and behold, he discovered that not only did the chief llama uh, not refute Notovich, but to him, he actually said everything I told Notovich was true. Now, why is this? Again, Eastern diplomacy. Um, the difference between J. Archibald Douglas was he was a, a very obvious white European who came in to Himius Monastery and, and said, look, I want to know about this manuscript that you read to this guy, supposedly. Is it true? Very blunt, very direct. Bold, no. no all of this false. Uh, Swami Abhinandanda, um, he was culturally from the same same culture uh, as, as, um, as Asia. He was, uh, I believe he was Indian, and um, he was very well versed in um, many different Asian cultures and was actually um, a very well respected um, uh, professor. So when he went and spoke with the chief lama, he was much more similar to Notovich. Not only in unlike Notovich, didn't he look more the part and there was a general understanding that they were very similar, you know, like-minded people as uh, him and the, and the, the, the lama and the monks, but um, that his knowledge of the culture and the way that he went about verifying these claims was also important to, to being told the truth. So we now have the second, uh, the second person confirming the existence of these manuscripts it was none other than one of the close friends of the main person that has so far stood in main opposition of it. So then there's the third person. In the same year, in 1929, famous painter and artist, Nicholas Rorich, another Russian, quoted the exact same verses in his tra- travel di- diary of his Asian expeditions. Ten years later, in 1939, uh, a, a, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Kaspari was presented with Buddhist manuscripts by the chief librarian at the Hemis Monastery who proclaimed to her, these books say your Jesus was here. So this is important because Nicholas Rorch, he knew about Nicholas Notovich. So did Swami Abhinandanda. Elizabeth Kaspari had never heard of Nicholas Notovich. She had never heard of the ideas that Jesus Christ had lived and studied in Asia and in India. So this completely floored her. But she also confirmed um, the same thing that, that the three other the three previous men had. Um, also, let me skip a few, few uh, to the epilogue a little bit. Um, there were additional people. We have Supreme Court Justice Bill Douglas, who also traveled to Hemis and verified the same thing. World Traveler Ed Nowak and Professor Bob Ravitz and others that, that may or may not turn up in the, in the near future all confirmed the same thing. They either verified the existence of manuscripts that talked about, uh, about Jesus or they verified the very strong and unrelenting local uh, traditions and and legends of Saint Isa living teaching and 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 
studying in Asia and in India. So why is any of this relevant? I mean, where does it, does it really matter where Jesus was during those lost years or what he was doing? Um, some people will say no, but in my opinion, it, it is very important because it casts a completely different image on somebody. If Jesus was, you know, what's your image of Jesus if you just close your eyes and think of it right now? It's probably a white person, right? White dude. You know, brown hair, blue eyes usually. Very European looking. Um, in actuality, obviously, Jesus wasn't white. There's very, very few details about what he looked like. But if we were to go by anyone living in first century Palestine, he had darker skin, darker hair, um, you know, looked Arabic, looked Middle Eastern. Um, so not only do you change his appearance, but you also change his culture. Um, we, again, were assuming that Jesus was a, a, you know, it was a Jew through and through. And that that was kind of the limitations of how he was influenced. But if he traveled to India... And he studied Buddhism. I mean, that completely changes the the, the ideas and, and, and perception of who Jesus was and what he believed in. Um, further, it also casts doubt into the story that Jesus was crucified and died on the cross, only to be risen into heaven as as a, as a you know as an eternal as his eternal spiritual self. Um, in in the Muslim, uh, in, I'm sorry, in the Islamic faith, Muslims believe that Jesus' ascension um, was more spiritual than it was physical or literal. That um, after his crucifixion, his his soul, so to speak, permanently merged with Allah or the or, or the Creator. But um, not Muslims don't believe he was the the Son of God, and they don't believe that he. Um, that he, you know, magically resurrected forever with, with God as his, as his equal. In the Islamic faith, actually, um, j- just like it is supposedly in the Christian, but it's a sin to worship anyone other than, other than Allah. And Jesus said the same thing uh, in, in his ministry and in the Sermon on the Mount. But for some reason, um, Christians don't have an issue worshiping uh, a man, Jesus, as as God or a deity, you know, a false idol, so to speak, which Jesus literally commanded against himself. But uh, going back to why it's important, um, there are, are there are not even rumors. There are traditions, even Christian traditions, that Jesus actually lived for for years after his crucifixion. Let's let's not forget um, both Peter and Paul said that they 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 spent. They, I'm sorry, they spent, they met Jesus and, uh, several times after his crucifixion. But in the Gospels, it's, it's that he was like an angel or he was, you know, supernatural. He, was, he wasn't. But they claimed that they saw him. Um, other people claimed to have saw him. Um, and there's actually a lot of evidence that after his death, he actually fled um, Jerusalem and uh, ended up dying in uh, Sharanghar, Kashmir where there's actually a shrine uh, dedicated to St. Isa, and it's supposedly where he was buried. And get this, not only can you still visit it to this day, in the COVID-19 world, you know, it might be a little bit harder, but uh, to this day, if you go to the tomb of St. Isa, the, um, the monument that is erected on top of, you know, where the body supposedly lays, um, there is, um, there is a, a statue of... of two feet 
overlapping, you know, on top of each other, with a single hole penetrating through both of them, as if crucified. Not it doesn't just stop there. The 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 same statue also is placed according to Jewish burial rites. Um, Muslims and Jews they bury their dead in in different directions. Uh, Muslims are are supposed to be uh, facing Mecca, and uh, this was according to Jewish burial rites. So um, Kashmir again. There is a, a somewhat of a Jewish um, presence there, but overwhelmingly to this day, it is it is entirely Muslim. So the idea that um, that a, a Jew was buried in a place that is predominantly inhabited and made up of people that are that are Islamic um, just further defies all logic and reason of why that should be the case. So. If Jesus did survive the crucifixion and went and, 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 and fled elsewhere, he obviously did it for certain reasons. He was the he was the most wanted man in all of the Roman Empire. And think of the political embarrassment that Rome would have been facing in realizing that this wanted man somehow miraculous, miraculously survived. Now before you go all cra- get all pissed at me and say, there's no way, there's no way. Consider this. Do you know how long it takes people to die from crucifixion? Okay, if you're not stabbed in the side like like the Gospels claim Jesus was, which again was actually not standard Roman practice at all. They didn't stab people in the sides. The whole point of crucifixion was to uh, to cause as much pain and suffering as as possible, um, but also to serve as a uh, as a warning to anyone who dared resist the empire. So the idea that they would have stabbed Jesus to make sure he was dead is is just, is, is laughable because you know they just would have left him up there to to, to rot. Um, but consider this again: in the Gospels, all four of the canonized Gospels that, that speak of the crucifixion, Jesus was taken off the cross between six and eight hours. I asked you earlier, how long does it take somebody to die that's crucified? They don't die from their wounds. It takes between 24 and 36 hours to die. And they die due to suffocation, a lack of oxygen. Now do this. Stand up straight. Extend your your right and your left hand out, almost like you're on a cross. And kind of pull your arms back, you know, as how they would kind of have to be pulled back a little bit if they were, you know, if you had nails hammered into them, into your hands. If you're doing it right now, you're going to feel a tremendous amount of pressure on your chest. Now... Take that same pressure and add on the weight of your body hanging as you're suspended against it, you know, with nails. So there's a crushing amount of force that is pressing down on your on your chest, on your lungs. And this is how people die. It's after about a day, day and a half of feeling like you have a, a rock on your chest. Eventually, your your body you just cannot get enough oxygen. You end up you end up dying due to lack uh, oxygen oxygen deprivation. So. They took him off the cross between six and eight hours. I'm sorry, I, I think it's six and nine hours. One of the two. I'm, I'm making. I'm getting my 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 facts mixed up here. Point is, is it wasn't 24 to 36 hours. So, um, what did the people of the time in first century Palestine know about human biology or physiology? Did they know anything about how the body operates, how we breathe, how we you know, how the heart works, how the brain functions? No, no. So, looking at a visibly, you know, by all accounts, dead Jesus, um, 
it was, I believe, Joseph of Arimathea that that uh, strongly, you know, begged the 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 Romans to to take him down so that he could, you know, give him a proper burial, which they obliged. Um, Jesus, by all accounts, looked dead. Probably, you know, he was probably pale, not really breathing, cold to the touch. These are all things that are possible. It's curious, though, that when he was taken into the tomb, even the Gospels say this. He, he wasn't, they didn't take in embalming agents, you know, as if he were dead. They taught in healing herbs. Aloe. Aloe was one of the most common healing herbs of the time, and it was actually used extensively by the Romans for its, uh, for its healing properties. So imagine you're a follower of Jesus, and you're, you're mourning his death, and you're looking at him, by all accounts, dead, but maybe not clinically dead. Maybe his brain function is still active. Three days later, <gasps> breath, breath of life again, with no understanding about basic human anatomy. How would you explain what you just witnessed? The answer is you would explain it as a miracle. Only God could have literally breathed life into him. That's the only explanation that would have made sense. So great, Jesus is alive. Fantastic. Now what? We got the entire Roman Empire, not only on the hunt for his followers, but convinced that he's dead, but he ain't. So now what do we do? Well, obviously you got to get the hell out of Dodge, right? You got to get out of town. So maybe this is where all the stories of the second coming came back. Guys, I will return when the heat dies down. Maybe he wasn't talking about the literal return you know, the second coming of judgment and all that stuff. Maybe he was just talking about when I can come back safely. The point to all this, and I appreciate you listening, is that there is a lot of history that um, most people are unaware of and that, more importantly, there is more evidence behind the idea that Jesus not only uh, survived his crucifixion, but that he studied in Asia and that he was a very different man than than the, uh, the Gospels would have us believe. There's more evidence of that than there is that he was the Son of God and that he was magically resurrected into heaven following the crucifixion. Because the only evidence of that is that is the Bible. That's it. Uh, a last little note before I let you guys go, if you haven't clicked off already. Um, the Bible, as a, as a reference point for history, consider the fact that the Bible was canonized, was put together formally under... The Roman Empire. It was none other than Emperor Constantine, who was the first Roman uh, emperor convert, uh, who effectively created the Church of Constantine, but named had it called the Christian Church. Um, he organized what was called the Council of Nicaea, where two thousand Roman bishops, none of them were Jews; they were all Romans decided and voted on the divinity of Jesus. It was known as the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed said that Jesus was the literal Son of God and that he existed in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Anyone that disagreed was killed, exiled, or their uh, teachings were violently uh, repressed. Uh, Chief among them were the Arians, um, but there were others. And um, as I said before, let me look it up real quick. Um, it was 
second century tradition from church father Irenaeus asserts that Jesus lived 10 to 20 years after his crucifixion. On completing his 30th year, he suffered, being in fact still a young man, and who had by no means attained an advanced age. Now that the first stage of early life embraces 30 years, and that, his, and that this extends onwards to the 40th year, everyone will admit. But from the 40th and 50th year, man begins to decline towards old age, which our Lord possessed, while he still fulfilled the office of the teacher. Even as the gospel and the, all the elders testify, those who were conversant in Asia with John, the disciple of the Lord, that John conveyed to them that information. This view is also supported by the 3rd century Gnostic text, Pistis Sophia. It came to pass when Jesus had risen from the dead that he passed 11 years discoursing with his disciples and instructing them. So, even Christian theologians assert that Jesus lived for a time after he was crucified. All I want you to take away from this is that you must unlearn what you have learned. If you're a computer, you have to uninstall the lifetime of indoctrination software that you've been programmed with. And you got to look at things from a different perspective, just as I have. Why is Jesus important? Well, consider that if the truth of Jesus is ever realized by the world, you effectively unite four world religions at once. You unite Christians, you unite Muslims, you unite Jews, and you unite Buddhists. Those are four of the biggest, most dominant world religions on earth, which comprise over half of the world's population. We always say that, you know, what, 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 would, what would be required to make peace on earth? To be honest, my, the only one thing, it's Jesus. It's, it's acknowledging who he really was and what he really did and what he really said and what he really taught us to do. He wants us to love our enemies and he wants us to love everyone and everything as we would love ourselves, including animals. Thank you for listening. May God bless you as God has blessed me. And I hope that you continue to pursue the truth as I have. Thank you for listening again. My name is Neo, and this is The Matrix is Real.